What's up, everybody? It's Tuesday, July 28th, 2020. This is A Talk in the Attic. I'm your host, Kirk Ross, coming at you from our attic studio in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is coming along little by little every day. Later in today's show, I'll be including a little Bob Vila segment that ties one of myriad attic build-out projects with today's theme. But for now, let's keep it loose, at least in the opener. As a means for keeping potential podcast topics organized, I've got a couple notebooks laying around that are absolutely filled with content, ranging the entire spectrum of so many different attributes, from half-baked to overdone, from logical progressions to absurd non-sequiturs, from, oh, this guy's a hoot, to, whoa, Nelly, that's dark. And despite my commitment to the notebook idea, I mean, every successful comedian of all time swears by the notebook method after all, but for me, it just hasn't gained momentum like I had hoped it would. But how does this relate to you, the listener, you might ask? Well, to that perspective question, allow me to provide an answer with a super overdone intro to a new segment that we're calling To the Notebook We Go! Welcome to A Talk in the Attic's first ever installment of To the Notebook We Go. You might have already guessed this, but this segment will be me going to my notebook. So let's give it a shot. Okay, okay, just going to randomly open this bad boy up, and this page is blank. No big deal. Just try another page and another blank page. Damn it. Roll with the punches, Kirk. Maybe just sneaking up on the page and opening it real fast will help it out. Shit. What about this one? How about this one? Here's something, finally, oh, never mind, it's just a stick figure of Jessica doing a cartwheel with big boobs and a confirmation number from her credit union. Okay, okay, here goes. Let's just open up to the first page. How's that? And let's start this whole segment back from scratch. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. Please join me in this brand new segment that we're calling To the Notebook We Go! Today we're just going to start on the first page of the notebook. Look, I could open up to any page on this entire thing and contents would be seeping out of the seams, but for today, we'll just start on page one. Okay, first bullet point, animal grouping names. And then below that, I've written a group of two pugs or more is called, get this, a grumble. Any of you fellow pug lovers out there know exactly why this fits. Much like Marge Simpson and her sisters, the natural disposition of the pug is, quite frankly, grumbly. In fact, every single time that I ask Nunzio to get down from the couch, his eyeballs grumble at me. He even sometimes vocalizes a grumbling sigh before repositioning his head somewhere else on the cushion, averting his eye contact accordingly. So if you're ever in the highly enviable position of being around a group of pugs, then you can pull out this new factoid. Group of pugs is a grumble. What about this one? A group of ferrets is called a business. Which is an impossibly adorable thing to even imagine. An entire group of like-minded entrepreneurial ferrets dressed in tiny, formal business attire. Little briefcases filled with sales projections. Mini fridges in the employee lounge filled with even more miniature Tupperware containers filled with things like bugs and mice. A passive-aggressive note is scrawled onto the cafeteria microwave, begging whomever it is who keeps stinking up the office by microwaving salmon every day to stop doing so. But they all know who it is. It's you, Tony. Yeah, that's right. Even in a business run by ferrets, it's the Tonys you got to watch out for. Imagine the wasteland of negativity that must exist out there on these review websites for these ferret-run companies. Probably tons of one- and two-star reviews, I'm sure. A warning that would likely show up more than a few times? What do you expect? 
Never go into business with a bunch of weasels. Speaking of adorable little mammals, do any of you know the formal name for a group of lemurs? Anyone lemurs? That's right, a group of lemurs is called a conspiracy. Makes total sense when you think about it, because don't lemurs kind of look like they're up to something? And then furthermore, they kind of also look a little paranoid. And to prove my point today, I've got with me in studio for the first time ever, a conspiracy of lemurs. I'd say give it up for them, but they're acutely sensitive to loud noises. But here they are, all the way from Madagascar, Larry Lois and their traveling conspiracy of lemurs. Welcome to the show, y'all. Let's just jump right into it. Do you have any insight into the coronavirus pandemic? It's all a hoax by Bill Gates to grow the prevalence of Zoom meetings. George Soros created COVID-19 in a lab in order to drive more investment to Bitcoin and thereby destroy America. The gay agenda is using coronavirus to convert God-fearing heterosexuals into flamboyant homo ones. Hillary Clinton is stockpiling Soviet-era military equipment for Antifa to use to destroy Confederate statues and their traditional family unit. Okay, well... Let's move along to a less polarizing subject. Larry, how do you and your conspiracy feel about ferrets and their way of life? Ferrets? Well, that's their business. Move it! All right, you lousy lemurs. Let's put an end to this charade. And in doing so, let's end also this animalistic first installment of To the Notebook We Go! And with that, I think it's high time we get into something a little bit more cerebral. Today's theme is going to be anxiety... I know, not the most relaxing theme. Some of you might already have sweaty palms just thinking about this terrifying concept. That said, I promise that if you keep listening, you'll get something positive, something valuable out of today's show. But before you can get anything valuable out of the show, we have to first get into the show. So with a little help from the lemurs backstage, let's start the show. Spend their lives resenting their fathers Some girls hate their bodies Stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback Saying, God, make me famous If you can, just make it famous Just make it famous Alright, today's topic, anxiety It's something that is inherently intertwined into the human condition but something that is becoming more pervasive to most of us every single day. And we all know exactly what anxiety feels like, right? To some of us, anxiety feels like repetitive thoughts racing around our brains in endless circles. Maybe it makes us sweat a little bit. Maybe it inhibits our ability to concentrate on whatever it is that we need to concentrate on. As a possible definition, I'd posit that anxiety is an emotional and or physiological response to stress. Pretty simple on its face, right? But what's less clear, especially these days, is the stress component of that definition. What is stress exactly? For most of history, our fellow humans viewed the very meeting of fundamental survival needs as their primary stressors. Food, water, and shelter comprise the foundational necessities of living things, as identified by Abraham Maslow in his famous hierarchy of need. Food, water, and shelter. Things that we truly cannot survive without. But how many of us these days are truly stressed out about the prospect of losing food? After all, Uber Eats is just a quick download and an aggressive shame spiral away for most of us. 
when's the last time you were truly thirsty? Like so parched that you began to experience a genuine stress as a result of it. No, Janice, that time you went on a three-month hiatus from wine only to return with a two-bottle of Moscato performance at your Thirsty Thursday girls' night doesn't count. As for shelter, yes, there are currently millions of homeless Americans who know well of this stressor. And for many more, losing their homes to foreclosures and evictions is lurking around the quarter. But for most of us still, we don't have any real immediate stress when it comes to shelter. So our survival needs are essentially met. From there and working upwards, we know that safety needs are next on the hierarchy. To many in this country, the true feeling of physical safety is absolutely in short supply. Survivors of abuse and marginalized minority communities ostracize groups of alternative sexuality. Certainly safety is of concern, but for most of us, we aren't truly scared for our safety, at least not in any immediate sense. So let's consider this one for the sake of keeping this thing moving checked off. And generally speaking, the vast majority of us aren't really worried about food or water or shelter or safety. At least not comparatively when viewed against their ancestors. So what happens then when the first two layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are met and essentially met without any real energy or time investment? What used to take 90% of our ancestors' waking hours to seek out is now handled on demand without so much as a conversation with anyone. Food shows up on your doorstep. Water is tapped directly into our homes. There are no bands of Mad Maxian marauders out there looking for blood and treasure. But if 90% of our waking time is no longer needed on the most essential survival requirements, then it doesn't take a ton of intellectual prowess to see that we've got a lot more time on our hands. In fact, I'm noticing now that I actually have a hefty helping of hummus on my hands as well, but that's beside the point. And with this extraordinary amount of additional time on our hands, we've replaced previously essential tasks with other activities. Activities that, thanks to the exponential rate of technological advancement, are growing increasingly ambiguous and solitary while simultaneously taking less and less time. Which then, of course, leaves us with more time. Look, if you're my age or older, then like mine, your parents live most of their professional lives without cell phones, without email, really, without multiple Starbucks outlets within a few miles. When your mom wanted to pitch an idea to a coworker, she didn't text a quick synopsis of her thoughts and expect an immediate reply. She likely picked up the phone for a 10-minute conversation or called an hour-long face-to-face meeting. When a business proposal was due to a customer, your dad didn't zip up a PDF and shoot it over for review. He likely made a three-day trip out of it. But with this enormous increase of professional efficiency, future generations' workdays haven't shortened. In fact, the very same technology responsible for the acceleration in our pace of task completion has actually lengthened our workdays. It used to be that when a dim-witted manager needed to get a hold of you to ask you about some unimportant detail, the communication would wait until the next business day at the office. But now it's an email. At 6 o'clock, followed by a 6.30 text that says, hey, did you get my email? Followed by a 7 o'clock call that says, did you see my text about seeing my email? I mean, what's next? An unannounced drop-in at your door? Hey, bud, not trying to bother you, but did you get my voicemail about seeing my text about seeing my email? So we're completing more tasks per unit of time, and we're connected to our jobs for more units of time, and the result of this, ostensibly is higher productivity. And with higher productivity comes more products. 
And with more products comes more consumption. And with more consumption comes more scarcity. And with more scarcity comes increased demand. And with increased demand comes steeper prices. And with steeper prices comes inflated wages. But with inflated wages come fiercer competition. And with fiercer competition comes destruction. And with destruction comes, and this, my friends, is indicative of what my particular brand of anxiety looks like. And in an episode that started out with animal grouping names and a pledge to make sticking around worth your while, it's evolved into an anxiety-reducing example of a ruminant, repetitive thought reel. But now that I've got you all worked into a tizzy yourselves, I mean, who even says that word tizzy anymore? Probably just old fogies out there who use words like tizzy. And interestingly enough, a phrase like old fogey. Notice that? Only old fogies say old fogey. Am I an old fogey? But now that I've got you all worked up into a lather, that's worse than tizzy, allow me to fulfill my previously promised positive lesson, and it's a lesson based on a highly tangible, highly relevant project to a talk in the attic. As most of you know, the attic from the podcast title is more than homage to Shel Silverstein. It's more than an allegorical allusion to my mind. It's also the physical location of the recording studio, home to the podcast. And since we've already covered the fact that I, well, that we, have got plenty of time on our hands, I decided to use the two primary vertical walls as statement pieces for both aesthetic and acoustic function up here in the attic. I need you all to imagine in your head an entire wall built of various length wooden blocks, each with a one and a half by one and a half square face of varying lengths, Essentially, wooden tiles that randomly recede and precipitously protrude from their neighbors. Can you picture this? If not, hit me up on social medias and I'll fire you some pics. From an aesthetic perspective, the natural material and obvious handcrafted approach makes the wall look super dope. I plan to use the clear coat of polyurethane to finish it off, which will keep its natural appeal intact. Acoustically, the variably uneven surface will help diffuse sound waves such that highly disruptive reverb or echoes will be squelched from recordings. So far, so good, right? Except that in the roughly 50 hours, I said that right, 50 hours of time required to almost complete this diffuser wall, I've experienced a significant amount of anxiety about it. Thoughts like, come on, this is taking forever, and really, dude, you need to buy another bundle of 2x2s turned into you're wasting time, and maybe you need to get a job. Unhealthy trajectories, no doubt. Especially since this is a project predicated on passion and creative expression and fun. At times, though, this diffuser wall created a negative emotional and physiological response for me. The scope of not just this special wall, but the attic project overall would balloon and scale in my mind such that I couldn't even see how to proceed. I mean, how could I? How could a mind clutter with every possible idea about every potential problem and every potential solution possibly proceed in any sort of productive manner? And how I ultimately learned to cope with this anxiety is simple, and it even might seem obvious to some of you. I simply started working on the wall again. I stopped thinking about the nearly 4,000 wooden blocks, each individually cut, sanded, positioned, and glued into place, I stopped thinking about how I might appropriately light the wall once it's done or how it would match the rugs up here or how I just, just stop. Just stop thinking and started doing. I went and cut another small batch of blocks and then I sanded them and then positioned and placed them. 
and right down to the most singular entity possible on this project, to the single block. I committed all of my thoughts and all of my energy and all of my love into each and every one. I learned that each tile has its own defects, its own stories. Each had its own path. None of them had a preference about how they would be lit or if it would match the rug. And by focusing on the most elemental of tasks, by focusing on what I could control, I learned for the three millionth time in my life that it's only our perspective of whatever it is that's eating us that is creating the problem. My wife, Jessica, talks about this concept of organizing things into her circle of influence, a space reserved for things, the outcome of which we can possibly impact, and her circle of worry, a dish of all the things beyond our control. And like some sort of Viking funeral ritual, we set the contents of the circle of worry aflame and send it off into oblivion. And with those items within our circle of influence, we drill down to the most elemental, singular of tasks available, and we act. Because when we're doing things, particularly productive things, we're not really thinking about the big picture, which is scary these days. I know we've been told to keep our mind on the big picture throughout our life, but sweet fancy Moses, that's a scary image to take in right now. We've got propaganda everywhere, divisive nonsense, bad leaders, huge inequality. The big picture holds all of the worry, all of the stress, all the anxiety. The big picture in the case of the diffuser wall included the entire attic build-out. It included alternative things I could have been spending my time on. It included the multiverse of reactions that others may or may not have when they see or don't see it for the first time. So I had to put the big picture in my circle of worry and set it ablaze. And I instead focused on each individual block. And inside of each individual block lies an entire story of not only the wood itself, but for me as well. And with all of these tiny, wonderful stories all around us, why in the world would we ever choose to focus on this whole big story, on the whole world, on Trump, on our own personal shortcomings? So many of us struggle with anxiety, and more and more of you will be following as we continue down our path of quantum technological advancement set against the glacial pace of human evolution. It's okay, though, because we can't focus on all of those problems. We can't focus on the whole wall. Let's just focus on one little block. Listen, folks, I know it's hard sometimes, but I have the utmost confidence that within you, lies the ability to focus on that one little block. Peace out, y'all. Every inch of sky's got a star Every inch
back again Can't make it back again 